What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Today, we are chatting with an amazing woman who has lived an incredible life so far. Um, she will continue to live an incredible life and do amazing things. But in this episode, we'll talk about what she has done up to this point in her life and how she has impacted people around the world and inspired many individuals. So currently, her title is President and CEO of Society for Science and the Public, which is a a company that has a bunch of different aspects to it, but one of their biggest ones and maybe most known ones is the publishing of Science News Magazine, print and digital. It's been around since 1921, and it promotes and empowers the understanding and appreciation of science and the vital role it plays in human advancement um, across the world. Um, it, it's a pretty pretty amazing platform, so check it out if, if you get a chance. Um, science News, it's tons of incredible information there. It's, it's pretty amazing. Her first real big uh, success, right, in victory was when she started the Global Fund for Children in 1993. And that was a, a nonprofit that invests um, in community-based organizations working with some of the world's most vulnerable children and youth, um, specifically in India, parts of India, where she had discovered these, these issues when uh, she traveled there when she was pretty young. She served as, as founder and CEO of that organization for 18 years and grew it from its vision to be one of the largest networks um, working on behalf of vulnerable children in the entire world. To date, the Global Fund for Children has awarded nearly $40 million to over 600 grassroots organizations in 80 countries, touching the lives of nearly 10 million children. She's also a children's book author. She's written over 20 different children's books. She's been on plenty of boards. She's been professors. She's been all kind of amazing things. Uh, she was the she was the inaugural social entrepreneur in residence at Duke University School of Public Policy. She was also a visiting scholar and professional lecturer at John Hopkins University in the International Studies Department. She's the co-chair of the Board of Echo and Green. She's a trustee of the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics and a board member of Kids in Need of Defense. She serves on many advisory boards, including the Center for Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship at Duke University, Washington Area Women's Foundation, America India Foundation. You get my point. She's done some amazing things. And I won't, I'll let her speak more in, in depth about, about all these different things. Let's just get into it. I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time to listen. Have a great day. Thanks. The first thing I like to start with usually, and I know I mentioned it before, but you have have lived a, a pretty incredible life so far and, and done a lot. It's so many different things and it's uh, it, it's pretty amazing. But I wanted to start first maybe with the Rotary Fellowship that happened, I believe it was 1990. Is that correct? Around that time? Yeah, 1989 to 1990 is when I was awarded the Rotary Graduate International Fellowship. And that that seemed to be some sort of catalyst a little bit into the journey uh, that your life has taken. So can you just talk a little bit about that experience and, and how that maybe sparked uh, something in you? In you? So um, I was fortunate. I uh, went to Bryn Mawr College, uh, majored in neuroscience, pretty much knew that I was going to go get an MD-PhD, uh, become a research scientist. And I got an incredible opportunity of receiving the Rotary International Graduate Fellowship. And it's, it's truly one of those wonderful fellowships that gives you a chunk of money to go anywhere in the world to study for a year, but also to travel. 
And I had wonderful professors who said, Maya, if you really want to understand people and their aspirations, um, get a backpack and start traveling for a year. Mm-hmm. And so I traveled from Thailand to Pakistan for one year. But I also was uh, situated at uh, St. Xavier's College in, in Mumbai. And um, that was sort of my hub. And I went from there traveling everywhere. And I wrote papers to my professors about what I was learning. But there was one particular moment that I had, which was at a train station in Bhubaneswar, India, which is in the state of, um, I think it's Orissa. Um, but it, it was a very hot March day in 1990. I got off the train. And, you know, if you've ever been to a train station in India, they're pretty chaotic places. It almost feels like Penn Station in New York City. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in that chaos, I saw 50 kids sitting in a circle learning how to read and write. And there was a teacher in the middle teaching these kids with flashcards. And these Kids were obviously destitute. And I asked the, the, the teacher, you know, I speak Hindi. Uh, she spoke Oriya. So I had a friend of mine who actually spoke both languages and was able to translate for me. But she basically said that these children live on and around the train platform. They work, they play, they eat, they beg, they sleep, but they don't go to school. Mm-hmm. And so there was an extraordinary social entrepreneur who said, instead of getting these kids to school, I'm going to bring the school to the children. And it was there that I had my moment of obligation. And that moment of obligation was this, that one, how come I don't see more trained platform schools all over India during my travels? And two, how do I help? Because what I found out was that it took only about $500 a year to educate 50 kids with two teachers and a hot meal every day. And I thought, wow, small amounts of money, if targeted properly, can do enormous change at the grassroots. So that's where I sort of had my aha moment of the Global Fund for Children. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect segue because that was sort of the next question I had, because this has seemed to, to be one of your one of your great one of many great great victories you've had in your life is the global fund for children because it, i mean it's been around for for so long over two decades the amount of impact how old and, i am right <laughs> <laughs> that's how I, I say that's how wise you are not how old you are <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> um but i i think over that over those two two decades or so i mean the the knowledge that that organization has derived from its work. What, what has that been like? And what have been some of the transformations you have seen through this nonprofit you have founded over the last couple of decades? So, you know, I founded it and led it for 18 years, right? So I'm no longer the president and CEO of the Global Fund for Children. I tend to relish and revel in the fact um, that I built that thing uh, across yep. the street, and and there's extraordinary people running that institution, like John Hecklinger, the CEO, and Corey Osher, the VP of Programs. But I will tell you what we have learned is, and and I think that learning still stays true today. That you make bets on extraordinary leaders at the grassroots, and you really invest in their visions for change. And once you do that, you really help support them to scale their work. 
I can give a great example of um, a woman named Sakina Akubi, who was going from Pakistan, from Peshawar into Afghanistan during um, the time of the Taliban in the 1990s. We started funding the Afghan Institute of Learning when it was only a $20,000 organization. This is when it was illegal to educate girls. Uh, If you were found to educate girls, you could be stoned to death. We gave them their first investment of $5,000 to educate girls in three cities secretly Mm. for for several years. And then when the Taliban fell after um, uh, 2001, we gave them another grant to support the education of boys. So over that time, we saw their growth. Well, now the Afghan Institute of Learning is the largest private non-governmental organization in Afghanistan serving over 400,000 women and children with education and health care. And I think the Global Fund for Children takes really great pride in the fact that we help support this organization during its earliest days and dreams. And part of the – was the, the initial mission of the organization, the main focus was to educate children where there was no opportunity of education. Is that at a base level what its mission was? Or is yes. still. I mean, it, 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 it's and, and it still is. I mean, it's it's to invest in innovative community based organizations throughout the world. And that can mean education. It can mean health care. It can mean vocational skills or, or life skills or enterprise skills. And it can also um, mean safety. Right. Safety from war, right. safety from trafficking, safety from violence. So we really look at a holistic sort of um, role that a community-based organization plays. But you really need to interview John Hecklinger. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Going back real quick to the, uh, to the point you made about educating in secret, can you give an idea of just what that me- exactly means? I mean, is it finding a location at night and being, you know, teaching in whisper, you know, like, can you just kind of take us into to what that actually means to educate a classroom in secret? So this was in the 1990s. You should probably interview again, Sakina Akubi to give you <laughs> a better sense of that time. But what it was, was teaching mothers and teachers how to teach secretly in their homes. Mm, so okay. girls you know, three or four girls, five girls would accumulate in one's home and they would be taught, but then the girls would leave at different times, right? They would never be huddled together. So um, that's what a secret homeschool is. You, you don't gain attention. And it's really groundbreaking human rights work, frankly, mm-hmm. because yeah. costs were very high. Yeah. And it, obviously it set the those initial classes, so to speak, right? Or those initial teachers set the groundwork for now, which is you know, one of the biggest private institute or is the biggest private institute of education in that entire country. So, I mean, that alone is an incredible, incredible feat to have that happen at, like you said, such a grassroots level of, you know, something as simple as teaching your child how to learn right at night in secret or, or their friends too. I mean, it's such an incredible transformation from that point to now having a an institute that is probably the bedrock of of what education now is there That's in that correct. country. So over 18 years, was science, because science seemed to be obviously one of your great passions, right? <laughs> if you, you don't go get a degree in biology and neuroscience without being passionate about it, I would imagine. 
started doing science, not doing science. I was in love with science since I was a little girl. Yeah. Um, I started working in a botany lab in seventh grade, working on a major research project called the growth of duckweed because duckweed is a future source of food and high in protein and um, did a major project and became a science fair junkie. I went to a high school that was totally about science and mathematics called the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics where I was in the fourth class. It was the first public residential high school in the United States for uh, kids in 11th and 12th grade who love science and math. Uh, I really give a lot of credit to Governor Jim Hunt for his vision for uh, creating that school. And and during my time in, in, in high school, I ended up working at Duke University doing a major pro- research project on recombinant DNA research, um, entered the Westinghouse Science Talent Search, and became uh, honored in that in that competition. So I've had a long string of science in my background. It was really sometimes you take left turns in your life right. when you don't expect it. But let me be very clear. My scientific training prepared me very well to found the Global Fund for Children. And one of those was, was one of, there's several key takeaways around doing science, around doing scientific research, doing project-based learning. One is, is that making mistakes or failure is looked at as a learning opportunity. Second is, is the integrity of data. The data is absolutely priceless, and that, that is all that you have. And the integrity of making sure that your data is correct, um, that you have to check it and recheck it and check it four or five times, is absolutely critical. And then third is the collaborative part of science. You know, there's this incredible stereotype that everyone works in a lab alone or and they're kind of, you know, isolated and they come up with the aha moment. Science is a very collaborative enterprise. And so I learned a lot about collaboration. And so I think those values really took me to be very successful in founding the Global Fund for Children. When you were still with, when you were having this journey with the Global Fund for Children for almost, you know, leading it for two decades, what was your life like in science, were you still in the scientific community working on things, trying to figure out ways that you can incorporate science into the Global Fund for Children? Or was it just you were taking on other roles in science while you were still doing that? Because I assume you just didn't cut science out your life for two decades. <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't. I took the, the lessons learned into Global Fund for Children. So data and impact measurement was really mm-hmm. important to us at Global Fund. I would also say that we funded some really interesting organizations uh, at the grassroots working on STEM education. Mm. One of them that I remember very clearly, it's become one of the biggest players in India, but it's called the Augustia Foundation, Science Foundation, and they created the first mobile science lab in rural India. And we helped fund one of their first or second mobile labs. And they now have hundreds of them, and they create rural science fairs throughout India. So I think, you know, I still have that spark. Um, but, you know, was I, did, was I interacting with scientists that are working to cure cancer or AIDS mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. finding uh, solutions to mitigate climate change? 
No, I was not in the thick of things as the way I am today with Correct. my with my job as president and CEO of the Society for Science and the Public and publisher of Science News. Well, let's talk about that because that is an enormous job and opportunity, I think, in this day and age, because I, I want to get your thoughts on how maybe technology and the innovation within technology and just maybe the gathering of data nowadays from, you know, even 10, 15 years ago compared to what it is now, how have you seen technology really enhance the scientific efforts and in all aspects of scientific research? So there's the advent of big data now, right? Mm -hmm. There are big, big data sets that scientists are able to capture and really do some very interesting modeling and thoughts around what may be happening in space, what may be happening around our communities. I'll give one example, um, and you should probably interview him as well if he has time, is Raj Chetty. Raj Chetty has used big data sets from the IRS to really look at opportunities, uh, especially for children. And how does it play when you live in a certain neighborhood versus another neighborhood? Does that opportunity change? Does it stay the same? And he's been very famous in creating, writing a paper called The Lost Einstein, where he talks about communities of where there are a lot of inventors, you actually will see a large number of kids become inventors. But Mm -hmm. then he talks about the STEM deserts, right, Uh, in parts of the United States, where you just don't see that innovation. That's because he had large big data sets to be able to be able to use that data and be able to conjecture and provide sort of why things are happening in our communities as the way they are. So that's just one example. We see our young people who compete in our world-class science competitions, the Broadcom Masters, the Regeneron Science Talent Search, which I'm an alum of, which was the Westinghouse <laughs> Science Talent, and the International Science and Engineering Fair, where kids are using data like never before because that data is available to experiment and, and work with. What are some of the challenges that you see that they're working on? Are there subject matters that you know, maybe a, a bigger subset of the students are trying to tackle. Um, is it? Is it? You know, obviously, climate change and, and science is sort of this this tug of war between denial and, and sort of reality a little bit. Is that a big subject matter for students? Is that something they're passionate about of, of digging deep into the data to try to figure out what climate change is going to be, what it is now, and, and try to figure out ways to to try to combat what's going on. So yeah, I think I think the environment is one. I think curing disease is another. Mm-hmm. One thing with a lot of our young, uh, our finalists in high school is that they're looking at a problem that actually may have affected their family or their community, or they're looking at a very big problem like climate change and able to funnel it into something that they can actually work on, right? You you, you can't just do a project. I'm doing a project on mitigating climate change. <laughs> you know, I don't that as a poster. Right. You know? What I do see is something on um, solar cells, right? Mm-hmm. And and, yep. and manipulating solar cells. and or, or you see something on, I don't have a poster called, I'm curing cancer. Instead, it's looking at a, a gene uh, around breast cancer. And what does that tell us in terms of, of cancer rates or something? So I'm just, you know, I, I think these kids, these young people from around the world who are doing really innovative research 
are coming up with some very interesting answers. And they're not answers, they're, they're an answer to part of a larger question. And what we take great pride in of our 70,000 plus alumni, I mean, one thing is, is we've been doing these science competitions since 1942. Incredible. We have a Arch alumni base. And so when you look at our alumni, many are world-class scientists like Feng Zhang, who competed in two of our competitions. He's a, one of the co-inventors of CRISPR-Cas9, the human, you know, mm -hmm. edit, it's yeah. the editing of the human genome. It's, it's um, professors that are teaching. It is folks like George Yankopoulos and Len Schleifer, who actually co-founded Regeneron. You know, they were they were participants. They won at, at the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. And they basically invested $100 million back to us for the Regeneron Science Talent Search. So we are actually seeing such extraordinary wealth of talent. And many of them, I want to say, come from extremely humble backgrounds. Mm -hmm. uh, some come from rural Iowa to rural Mississippi. Right. Many are to children of immigrants. Many are immigrants themselves. You know, this past year, we were at the International Science and Engineering Fair, and two young women from rural Kenya came and presented their project, a very novel device uh, to help the visually impaired, and they won one of the UN Sustainability Awards. And, you know, I that's what we get excited about. The other thing I get excited about is that the gender parity, we're seeing almost half our young mm -hmm. women Mm -hmm. competing at the International Science and Engineering Fair, all based on merit, right? And that is extraordinarily exciting. You know, I think that if we're going to solve the world's most intractable problems, it's got to be from science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics, frankly, because those are going to open sort of the door to, to helping to mitigate climate change, to finding the cure for, for, for breast cancer or, 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 finding, or finding better ways to, to, to be able to have transportation to alleviate pollution. So I'll leave it at that. I get very excited and I can keep talking about this forever. Yes. No, me too. What, so going back to the, uh, the two um, women from Kenya, how would they, how does somebody in rural Kenya even find out about the competition, right? And, and how do they even enter it? Or, you know, how does that work for um, individuals in very rural parts of the world? Because it's one thing to be in rural Iowa and it's another thing to be in rural Kenya. So I will tell you this: we take very great pride in the fact that we have been we have built one of the most powerful global STEM networks in the world, and it has taken years to do that since 1950, actually, to build this global network. And we actually build affiliate, help support, and build affiliated science fairs throughout the world. And we have a network of teachers as well as industry leaders as well as the ministries of education in these countries that want to make sure that young people um, in their countries get have the ability to do project-based uh, research and, and compete. And we're very lucky that there was a teacher uh, for these two students who cared very deeply about STEM um, and project-based learning. His name is Peter Tabichi. And he has a school in rural Kenya. His whole school is about project-based learning. Most interestingly, this teacher just last year won the $1 million prize mm. for the best teacher in the world. 
Wow. Because how he was able to create a group, you know, build a school and create such extraordinary students with such few resources is quite extraordinary. And he's a Franciscan priest. How, how do you no, spell his name? Sorry. His name is Peter Tabici. Man, that's an incredible. Who does who does the teacher, the global teacher of the year? Is that is that something you guys help no, out with at all? We can actually just send you some information if yeah. that's of interest to you because I think you should you should interview him. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's incredible. I mean, we can name the the five artists on the billboard charts, but I bet we can't name the last five global teachers of the year. <laughs> you know, so the, we need to get some more we need to get some more spotlight on these people. <laughs> so going going back real quick to you mentioned CRISPR and yeah. it, and it could be but it, is that the same public company Chris because CRISPR is a publicly traded company it's the like you says the genome company is that the same okay, is, is that I, I didn't know if that was the same person or not I just kind of wanted to to talk about science and business and how my belief is that business can change a lot of the problems that we have and scientists are amazing innovators, right? And they can create amazing businesses. So I just wanted to see if there was a renaissance or a new wave of scientists coming in, trying and wanting to build businesses to solve problems as well. Yeah. Yeah. So Fang Zhang, who's the co-inventor of CRISPR-Cas9, is an entrepreneur as well. And he has founded three companies. One of them is Ida Toss. And another one is Sherlock Biosciences, who's co-founded with another ICEF alum, you know, <laughs> George Onkopoulos and Len Schleifer. They are in the business of creating new drugs to help, you know, issues of asthma and eczema. Yes, we are seeing many of our young people who are taking their research and spinning them into companies. Uh, we have an incredible young woman, Anna Katrina Shedletsky, who has founded a company called Instrumental. And um, she worked on worked at Apple, and she just felt like we need to automate manufacturing. Mm. Manufacturing is really, really complicated and intense. So she's created, um, you know, a company around manufacturing and the automation of that. She's also, um, we also have a young man named Ramji Shirnivasan, who founded a company called Council, which is a genetics testing company. And he just sold that company to Myra Genetics. You know, we actually have uh, another alum who is one of the co-founders of Impossible Foods. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the big I mean, one. <laughs> they're, they're taking their research and taking it to market. Yep, and I to me that's that's what I I try to focus on and look at is how business can solve a lot of our challenges because that's how we get more and more people involved. <laughs> it's just the it's just the way our society and is set up, and you know, capital markets provide you know a lot of a, a lot of a lot of money to to really change. A lot of the things that we as consumers want to change, right? Our purchases go a very, very long way. And, and business can sort of produce really game-changing technologies and innovations that can solve these problems in manufacturing because she's not just solving a manufacturing problem, but she's probably also as a byproduct solving a pollution problem, right? So if you can innovate in manufacturing by becoming more streamlined and more efficient, that's probably going to lower you know, the emissions that that factory produces something like that right so there's so many byproducts and things that are are being 
uh, solved and when you when you just create a business, there, there's other effects that can happen. I agree. <laughs> what the the one thing I, I of the many of the many things that that you have done and are doing, can you talk about your experience as be being? I'm not sure how to phrase it, but sort of the first lecturer, or I'm not sure how to say it, of the Duke sort of social entrepreneur department. Sure. I'm not sure how to how to say that, but what has that experience taught you? And, and do you see a lot of the same innovation and, and inspiration from young people in that class and, and as you see in sort of, you know, the, the high school students in science? Sure. So I was the inaugural social entrepreneur in residence at Duke University. And this is um, a sabbatical I took after I uh, retired from the Global Fund for Children at a tender age of 40 years old. <laughs> I did to take um, some time to, to really think. Um, and during that time, I ended up writing a book um, called Invisible Children, yep. Reimagining International Development at the Grassroots. Um, and I had the opportunity to teach at the Paul Nietzsche School for International Studies. I was a visiting scholar at Johns Hopkins University and also was um, this inaugural social entrepreneur in residence. And look, I think it's the same as I see in high school students. Young people are ready to make change. And it's very different than my generation, frankly. I felt like in my generation, maybe generation before, it was very job, you know, we're going to go get a job. Mm. And and I feel like these days, young people are very focused on, it's not what I want to be when I grow up, it's what problem do I want to solve when I grow up, mm. right? And and I think that is something very powerful that I'm seeing with uh, college students and, and high school students. And I think that's a very different way of thinking about your college career, right? About what classes do you, you want to take? Because if you're, if you want to grow up to solve a problem, then you probably need to take classes based on the problem you want to try and solve versus I just want to be an engineer or I just want to be a teacher. I, you know, um, so that's a bit different, right? In terms of that thinking. Yep. Um, so I also think that we have got to do a much better job in this country of building scientific literacy. And I need to just go into that a bit. Sure, absolutely. I don't think our, our young people and our adult population are scientifically literate enough. And I take great pride in the fact that I'm publisher of Science News. That's mm -hmm. the other piece of the work here at the Society for Science and the Public is that we're one of the few newsrooms left of science beat journalists who have PhDs in their specific fields and write about the important discoveries happening around science, engineering, technology, and math. You know, we put out a magazine every two weeks called Science News, and we have millions of people go on to our digital news site. And I'm just absolutely um, amazed at the extraordinary discoveries, but how few people are interested in it, right? And so we have to do a better job of making sure that the work that's being done is being written and and sent out to the world in a way that everyone gets excited about it, right? Yep. No, I think it's it's a great point. And I think it's look, one of the one of the things that I, I'm passionate about is is media, right? And, and sort of digital platforms that allow discovery and education, right? And that's what science news is, I mean, it's it's an educational platform, right? It's just done maybe, and it's done in a different way, but you can go on the science news website and learn most amazing things, right? And, and you don't have to go to a classroom to learn them, 
right? So it's to me, a lot of these publications, especially um, publications like yours, to me, it's 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 education and discovery. It's just about learning things that you've never would have ever thought in your life, right? Whether it's about space or the ocean or animals or diseases or pollution, right? All these different things that all comes back to science in some way. It's it's a new way for people to educate themselves. And it's very easy to do. It's cost effective, right? For the most part, a lot of this stuff is free. <laughs> um, so think about you don't have to go pay $20,000 a year to get educated in science, right? If you're just sort of wanting to learn about things that interest you. And to me, that is one of the most powerful things that the internet has brought us and these people that have dedicated their time out of their lives to write about this stuff. So let me just be really clear. This is a newsroom that are fully paid folks. These are careers. They are running a newsroom, just like- Oh, wow. Okay. Or the New York Times runs a newsroom. Well, that's uh, even and, more. That's even more amazing. And, and we've been around for a hundred years. We have nearly a hundred and twenty thousand subscribers. One thing we take great pride in is we have a program called Science News in High Schools, where for five hundred dollars we have uh, corporations and philanthropists and others and and schools that pay to get science news into the high schools. Mm. And we're in nearly five thousand high schools in this upcoming school year. Uh, you know, we work with you know DoD to get science news into military impacted high schools. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so we're really, really working to make sure that we give an opportunity to every young person to be exposed to excellent evidence-based science journalism. I want to go back to, you know, science and not politics, but, you know, just the idea where science is sometimes um, demeaned a little bit or maybe not taken so seriously by some people in public life, right? They, they sort yeah. of dismiss what is not relevant to their argument. So how, how do you combat that, you know, the quote unquote fake news, right? When a science story comes out, it's something that's based on data and evidence. But then, you know, somebody else can just because maybe they have a bigger following, can just sort of change the whole dynamic of a conversation that is just false, right? And because it doesn't placate to what they believe in, then they have a lot of other people believe in the same thing. And then we we almost regress, right? We, we kind of have this segment of the population that doesn't believe in science at all. And it's like, <laughs> damn, that's it. Like, so how yeah. do you do, how, how do you guys deal with that? So look, I think we have to all collectively work together the ones that are putting out evidence-based scientific uh, learnings and work together to combat it. I also think policymakers have to do its part in, in combating it as well. Case in point, the whole immunization crisis, right, mm -hmm. yeah. of, of parents not wanting to immunize their kids. You know, there are places now that are policy-driven that saying the science says that it's important for your kids to get immunized. Um, the data shows it. The evidence is there. We've been doing it a very, very long time. And so now there have been policies created that your kid can't start school if they're not vaccinated or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or a pediatrician's office saying your kid has to be vaccinated for you to be able to see us as physicians. So those policies play a really important part in this to combat it, sort, sort of this fake news or uh, fake information. I think it goes hand in hand. From when you sort of 
started on your journey, did you see corporations work with um, science and research as much as they sort of do now? Has it always been a really good relationship between the business environment and the science environment? Or is that something maybe that's much more combined over the last 10 years or so? You know, the the speed of discovery now is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that yep. has a lot to do with, with technology, right? And and I think companies are looking to to academics and academics are becoming entrepreneurs. Yep. You know, they they, they they could be teaching in a classroom, doing bench science, also running a company or being a, a advisors to companies. We're seeing that across the board. And there are hubs in the United States and throughout the world that have this. I mean, Boston, Cambridge is a hub. New York City is a hub. Silicon Valley is a hub. Research Triangle Park is a hub. There are all these hubs where there's this, there's this, you know, integration of academia with with industry. And and I think academia is taking a very big role in the importance of in, of protecting intellectual property. Yep. At their at the, in their labs, right? And that's one of the things we really work with our stu- with our finalists about how do you protect your intellectual property, right? How yeah, do you discoveries? Because you guys talked to really innovative people at a young age, right? And, you know, like you said, we've talked about them maybe going into business is, and you might do this already. So part of my ignorance, if if I'm saying this wrong, but is it because like Bloomberg has basically an incubator, right? So they have Bloomberg beta to where they're interviewing all these startup founders at a very early stage, right? And then they actually invest in these companies. Yeah. Is yeah. that something that um, Science News or the organization at a top level does or would think about doing? Um, because they are have the ability, right? You have the infrastructure set up to take an idea and really incubate it and connect them all by having you know a financial stake and some equity in these in these ideas that become CRISPR, right? Become these publicly traded companies that are like solving massive issues. Is that something that has been thought about at all? Uh, Yes. And I will just say this, and I won't say much more about it, is that we have one of the most powerful closed ecosystems of talent Mm -hmm. in the world. Just flat out, because we know how to find the best talent uh, from middle school to high school. And we track these kids and many of them have started companies, and many of them are going to the startups like Y Combinator, yep. the the Bloomberg Beta, you know. And so that closed ecosystem of talent is a very powerful source of of support for us in yeah. the future. I just think it's super important, and it's it's an absolute revenue generator for the sustainability of not only the magazine, the organization itself. I mean. The pipeline and that you haven't created is important. It's invaluable, right? You guys should be benefiting from the incubation and the discovery of talent that you know you guys are producing. I mean, it's it's an incredible platform, and environment, and ecosystem for discovery, implementation, and you know the creation of of companies that are solving some of the world's biggest issues, right? I don't. I don't think it's something that <laughs> that we should hide at all, right? I think it's something that should be celebrated. Absolutely. You know? 
Yeah. I will tell you this is that we are in the phase right now of looking for new sponsors for the International Science and Engineering Fair. Intel was our sponsor for over 20 plus years and decided not to uh, continue with the sponsorship. They were wonderful uh, supporters, um, but we're in that phase now and look to companies throughout the co United States and the world to support these young innovators because everyone is looking for talent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is it was it Intel by themselves or was it a collaborative effort with other businesses and they were just uh No, they were the they were the title the, sponsor gotcha. of the International Engineering Fair. We're now looking for multitudes of sponsors right. or for ISAF because we've blown up the business model. We want to share the love with a lot of <laughs> Can can you talk a little bit about that fair and and exactly what it is and, and what goes on in that environment? Sure. The International Science and Engineering Fair is the largest pre-collegiate STEM competition in the world. Nearly 30 million kids compete in science fairs in their high schools and middle schools. They all rise into our affiliated fair system where we have over 420 affiliated fairs in 80 countries, regions, and territories. We have nearly 200,000 of the brightest and best that compete at these affiliated fairs every year, 365 days a year. And they, they rise up to come and compete at the International Science and Engineering Fair. This past May, we had 1,842 kids from 80 countries that, that competed for over $5 million in awards. Wow. Um, in, in 21 categories, from mathematics, to computational biology and bioinformatics, to plant sciences, to system software, to robotics and intelligent machines, energy, and they're the best of the best. They're the brightest. They are the talent pipeline to companies, but also to build new uh, industries. And, and it's also a pipeline to, to government, too. Right. I mean, and, and government needs elite talent. <laughs> and so we have a lot of government agencies at ISAF that provide awards. We have NASA. We have mm -hmm. the National Security Agency. We have the Air Force. We have Naval Research. We have uh, we have USAID. So government is also very, very much looking for talent and really are there in full force supporting these kids. But, you know, my sense is, is that we are, you know, really want to look to expand this. You know, the two the two girls from Kenya, from rural Kenya, they competed in one of our affiliated fairs in Nairobi, Kenya, from rural Kenya to Nairobi to Phoenix, Arizona. Those two young women came on a plane for the first time in their lives. These, right? Is this and, televised at all? Is this if we could get the spelling bee televised, we can't get we can't get TV partners to to televise the finals of this. I mean, this this would be much more entertaining. <laughs> well, I think I think if your if your uh, listeners are are interested, they should get back in touch with us on that. I will do a shout out to two major motion pictures okay. that that came out um, in the past year. One is Science Fair. That was created by National Geographic and will be shown this fall on Nat Geo channels throughout oh, nice. the world. Yep, yep. And the other one is called Inventing Tomorrow, which will uh, be shown on PBS. Okay. Yeah, I think I would be totally interested in, in doing something with that. I'm not sure when it's coming up this year. Is it in different locations every year or is it the same location? Uh, it is 
um, in a different location. It's in Anaheim, California, okay. uh, in next May of next year. And you should come. I mean, Ab- and do no, I, I'm absolutely 100% want to do that. And I will set up somewheres and all the finalists, we will dedicate, you know, a half hour or something if they want to come in and, and talk about what they're doing. I think it's, I think it would be an amazing thing. The last, the last question I, I want to end on is, you know, obviously you still have so much things to do in your life, but you've done so much already, um, especially for, for young women out there. What are some, some advice that, that you would, you would give them about, you know, not only science, maybe not only business, but just life in general and, and just kind of believing in yourself and uh, following your passion in life and not being sort of um, scared to, to do things and, and follow your passion and, and kind of disrupt <laughs> industries, uh, especially male dominated ones uh, that need to be, some of them need to be disrupted by women. So what, what sort of advice would you give uh, young women, women around the world? One is believe in yourself. Push the boundaries. Don't be afraid. And and just listen to your inner voice. Listen to the genuine inside of you. Because I think if you don't do that, I think everyone, not only girls, but girls and boys will falter. I also say, stay away from people who, who suck the passion out of you. Just mm. stay away from them. They're very negative. They don't believe in you and they can, they can destroy you. So stay away from people who suck the passion out of you, but also be close to people who actually challenge you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a real fine line between people who challenge you and ask you important questions, but still give you the pat on the back versus someone who's just a complete naysayer. I think this happens to girls a lot and to, and to women a lot where they get the passion sucked out of them because there are a lot of naysayers Like girls can't do something. Stay away from people like that. Stay creative. Right. I have a creative edge to me that we didn't talk about is I'm a I'm I'm a I'm a children's book author. I've written over 20 children's books and I have one book coming out this fall called Back to School. um, And it's for kids from, you know, up to third or fourth grade. And so I want to reach that group of kids. Right. About learning and about reading. And I would just say always have this creative edge to your life. Right. Because it keeps you sane. I just will say that outright. It keeps you sane. Yep. It's a great point. Yeah. Creativity is, uh, is something, <laughs> something we all need because it's part of the, you know, the left, the left brain, right brain balance is you don't want to be towards one side or not. You don't want to have just lean one way on that. You want to have both parts of your brain working in nuance together. Um, that's how create things that change the world, right? Is having both sides work and following your passion. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty amazing what can happen when you do that. So um, I want to thank you so much for the time. I know you're busy and uh, you have a lot of incredible things going on and you are continuing to, to impact the world every single day. And it's, it's an inspiration to me. It's an inspiration to, I'm sure people who are going to hear this. And so just, just thank you for, for what you've done in your life and uh, please continue to do the same. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me and to be asking me such important and interesting questions. And we'll see you at at the International Science and Engineering Fair next year. (laughs) I can't wait. No, I can't wait. I can't wait.